Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be understood as or considered a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone. This is your host, Adam Childers, here with the podcast brought to you by the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy, known as Briefly Legal. I'm really happy to be here today in the Crow's Nest here in Oklahoma City. I'm going to be joined by two different guests today, one joining me here in Oklahoma City, one from our sister office in Tulsa. And I'm really excited to uh, talk about today's topic. It's timely. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary on July 9th of the McGirt Supreme Court decision, which uh, was a momentous decision, not only in terms of Supreme Court jurisprudence in general, but obviously for the state of Oklahoma and any jurisdictions that consider themselves to be Indian country, which is certainly the case for the state of Oklahoma. So I am bringing in a couple of source experts from the firm to talk about the impact that it has now and will in for years into the future. The, the two people that are going to be joining me today are going to be Jennifer Lamoran and Greg Buzzard. Say hello to everybody, guys. Hello, everyone. Hi, glad to be here. Thanks. I'm excited to have both of you here. I know from the work that you guys do within the practice group here at the firm that you guys keep great tabs on all developments that impact this area. And of course, McGirt has been uh, probably number one on that list for uh, coming up on a year now and running. So glad to have your expertise. For those of you listening, I want to tell you a little bit about both of our speakers today. Jennifer Lamoran is a director in the firm's Oklahoma City office and a member of the Indian Law and Gaming Practice Group here at the firm. She's a citizen of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation and serves as an Associate Justice on the Citizen Potawatomi Nation Supreme Court. She's also uh, acted in the past as an Assistant Attorney General or Assistant General Counsel for several other tribal nations in Oklahoma. Greg Buzzard is an associate in the firm's Tulsa office, and he's a member of the Indian Law and Gaming Practice Group as well. He's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and he graduated from Yale Law School, where he served as a president of the Native American Law Students Association. Let's dive right into it, guys. I know just enough to be dangerous when it comes to the McGirt decision, but that's why I bring in people who uh, track these things a little bit more closely than me to to explain to our audience uh, what they need to know. And Greg, I want to start with you. I understand that in order to figure out what McGirt is really all about, in some ways, you've got to go a little bit back in time and start with a decision that preceded it that set the stage. Tell the audience about how we got there and what that history was. Sure, and and thanks for that. So McGirt and Murphy, which is the case you're referring to, sort of the preceding case, both involved criminal matters where these people were, these were criminal defendants prosecuted by the state of Oklahoma. And the first person, Patrick Murphy, who sort of kicked off this, this whole adventure, he committed a pretty heinous murder in what was historically referred to as the Creek Nation Reservation. And he was prosecuted and sentenced to death in Oklahoma state courts. And on federal habeas review, he argued, well, I committed my crime on a reservation. And under longstanding federal law, 
a Native American who commits certain crimes on an Indian reservation must be prosecuted by the federal government. So Mr. Murphy is, is a Native American. And so he argued in the federal courts that he should have been prosecuted by a federal court and not a state court. And they agreed that went up to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver. And they said, yeah, you should have been prosecuted in federal court. And they threw out his state conviction. That went up to the Supreme Court, and they were not able to issue a decision on that, uh, likely because Justice Gorsuch, who had come previously from the 10th Circuit, you know, it's thought that he had to recuse and, you know, therefore they didn't have a majority one way or the other. So the Supreme Court then decided to take up Jim C. McGirt's case, and he had committed, again, some pretty heinous sex offenses and uh, been prosecuted and sentenced in state court here in Oklahoma. Um, but his case went up through the state courts instead of the 10th Circuit. And so it's thought that the Supreme Court took up his case because Justice Gorsuch could be involved. And so these were very novel legal arguments uh, in Patrick Murphy's case and Jim C. McGirt's case. And, and so they both had the same thought. Well, we should have been prosecuted in federal court because we're Native Americans and our crimes were allegedly committed on a reservation. That's really the key. That's the crux of both Murphy and McGirt. So these these arose out of criminal matters. Was there certain kind of criminal matters that had to be involved or was it all of them? It does get a little complicated, but the, a, a very, very general rule is that major felonies and you think of things like murder and rape and serious assaults, those have to be prosecuted by the federal government. And when you get into lower level offenses, it, it depends on who the perpetrator and who the victim is, and it does get more complicated. But when you have an Indian defendant who commits these major crimes on a reservation, that does have to go through federal court. Well, that certainly sets the stage. Then we, we see the chronology from, from Murphy to McGirt, and now that turns us to what the decision was and, and, and how it turned out. And for that, I'll turn to Jennifer. Jennifer, tell us what the McGirt decision was once it was able to travel its way up to the state courts and avoid the Gorsuch recusal that had perhaps stopped a decision in Murphy. Absolutely. As Greg was saying, you know, the reservation designation is really the key of this argument. And the reason why Greg is saying it's novel is because of the fact that we're talking about Oklahoma. It's not necessarily novel to say that major crimes occurring on a reservation have to be prosecuted by the federal government. That is created by statute. Uh, But in Oklahoma, for many years, many people have been under the uh, assumption that we don't have reservations and that the lands that were provided to the tribal nations that were forcibly removed here or had had some existence here prior to statehood uh, were provided to the tribes, but they were not necessarily retaining their reservation status in the present day. And the lands provided and how we categorize these lands really goes back to the treaties. Uh, the treaties with the tribes are, again, supreme law of the land that's established by the U.S. Constitution. And the treaties for the Creek Nation, which is the nation involved here, go back for centuries. But the particular treaties we're talking about are Civil War era treaties, so mid-19th century, that really provided their jurisdiction in Oklahoma that has created boundaries for their tribal government and their reach and authority even to the present day. The only question was whether those boundaries created a reservation corpus within them or, you know, whether this was some other type of tribal trust land and fee land, some other designation under federal Indian law. 
the decision here in McGirt established that, no, we are going to uphold the treaties, preservation of a reservation for the Creek, Muscogee Creek Nation here in Oklahoma. So it declared that the reservation provided under the treaties going back to the mid-19th century has never been disestablished. That test under federal law, whether reservation's been disestablished, uh, really speaks and looks for congressional statements. So the analysis for the U.S. Supreme Court was whether anyone after the treaty had come in on the federal congressional level to say, Muscogee Creek Nation, your reservation no longer exists. They could not find any such express statements in any federal statutes, any congressional authority out there after the treaties. Therefore, if you do not have that, the reservation was never disestablished. That means the Muscogee Creek Nation reservation here in Oklahoma was declared as intact. And that corpus of land that was provided to this nation under the treaties remains their jurisdiction and their territory uh, to police to use for their benefit, for their tribal nation uh, going into the future until there is some congressional statement that takes that reservation status away. Which ultimately meant that there was no jurisdiction by the state of Oklahoma over the criminal acts that he was accused of. Correct. So the the actual analysis is looking a lot at reservation status. But again, we are all tying this back to the crime and the conviction of Mr. McGirt. And if that crime occurred within a reservation, according to Major Crimes Act and federal statutes, then you have to have prosecution by the federal government. That did not happen here. His prosecution was by the state government. Therefore, he was not properly prosecuted. And he gets kicked back into the system for potential federal prosecution. So, Greg, that sets us up for what the chaos perhaps looked like in the in the aftermath of McGirt, which is, well, what does that do to all these criminal cases that were decided potentially outside of that sovereignty and that, and that jurisdictional basis? So talk to us for a second about the impact of the decision as it relates to criminal law. Yeah, I mean, it's a big jurisdictional shift, uh, certainly. So for, you know, using Mr. McGirt as an example, so his state conviction was overturned. He was prosecuted without jurisdiction by the state of Oklahoma, and they took him right to federal court. They had a jury trial relatively recently, and he was convicted in federal court, and that conviction is with proper jurisdiction, so it will stick. And so for a lot of major crimes, Uh, committed by Indians in the state of Oklahoma, as long as that was committed on a reservation, that is likely the path they'll have to take. So McGirt, the decision addressed the Creek Reservation, the Skogee Creek Reservation, which is pretty substantial. I mean, includes most of the city of Tulsa. I'm speaking to you right now from the Muscogee Creek Reservation in downtown Tulsa. But the same principle has since been upheld through the state courts for the Cherokee Nation Reservation, Choctaw and Chickasaw and Seminole reservations. And and these are a group of five tribes that share similar treaty histories. So that's almost the entirety of the eastern half of the state of Oklahoma. And so for if a Native American commits a crime within that area, uh, if it's a major crime, these sort of murders and sexual assaults and, and arsons and other serious crimes, that goes to exclusive federal. It's not, let me rephrase that. It goes to federal jurisdiction and other crimes, including the major crimes, but mostly sort of these minor crimes, they go to tribal jurisdiction. That's a big change. I mean, there aren't that many federal prosecutors in the state of Oklahoma. 
tribal courts have historically not done that many criminal prosecutions. And now you're talking about a huge number of, of cases, thousands potentially of cases that will that would have previously been prosecuted in the state courts and will now have to be prosecuted in the federal and tribal courts. And there are some older convictions that will be unsettled. Um, that process is ongoing. People who are currently in state prison and, the, and they are making their challenges saying, hey, I should have been prosecuted federally or tribally. And those, those reviews of past convictions are ongoing in the state courts. Um, so it's quite a shift. I mean, there will have to be a shift of resources and we're already seeing that happening. A lot of the five tribes are beefing up their criminal justice systems. Um, the federal government is beefing up its prosecutorial presence in the state of Oklahoma. And a lot of these cases that previously would have gone through the state courts are, are being shifted. It's a real sea change. Jennifer, I, that gives me a sense on the criminal side, but what, what about the civil side? Is it similarly unsettled or, or do we really know what the future holds on that side of the ledger? Well, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions and there will continue to be, but I don't find that to be unsettling or chaos. And I want to make sure that everybody knows that this is how law progresses. You know, this is how Indian law has progressed for years and years. We have jurisprudence going back to, you know, the very beginning of this nation, uh, trying to determine the boundaries of jurisdictions for tribal nations within states, with the federal government. This is not necessarily new. Uh, this is a lot of impact on one particular state in the United States, and it does require change. But that happens. You know, the law progresses, and we are all seeing the changes that uh, flow from that, as Greg was talking about, through case law as it's making its way through the courts. Greg talked some about the criminal. You know, as far as, as the civil side, we're also seeing cases coming that are, you know, testing these boundaries that have been established and who has jurisdiction to do what. Taxation is an issue that we get questions about a lot. There are people that are wondering who has the ability to regulate different activities within these jurisdictions that are being uh, determined as reservations. You know, all of these things are unanswered questions that we'll get answers as we move forward and, you know, cases start to progress through our justice system. And I don't find that to be really unsettling. I just find it to be everyday work for us. <laughs> this is what we do. Absolutely. <laughs> are, are, in speaking of, of working towards those issues, are, are you seeing any efforts at a state level to address those jurisdictional issues? There are always discussions, right? When the decision came out last year, we did have a lot of talk about different things that can be done to really firmly establish these jurisdictional boundaries and address certain issues. And some of those talks occurred between the leadership of the tribal nations involved and the state government. They did not get very far, but that, that is always one avenue to try to come to agreements there are also questions about how far those agreements can take you and if you really need congressional action. And there is also uh, some talk right now going about congressional action to define certain boundaries for issues. So, you know, there are questions about whether congressional action will come on the federal level. That's always a potential. I think a lot of the tribal nations here would like to really work with the state and try to find ways to compromise and come to agreements about what to do for different civil issues. But again, 
the legality of how far they can go with simple agreements on the state level is also in question. I will say there are already compacts between the state and the tribal nations about many multiple different things. Uh, tobacco taxation is one. There are gaming compacts. We have now compacts on the Indian child welfare issues that I was referencing. There are many different things that the state and the tribes really talk about and come to agreements about through compacting. And you can find those on the state's website, actually. They publish them for the public. You can see hundreds of them up there. So that is something that's a process we're already doing. And congressional process is something that always is in the background. So we may see those things coming in the near future, but we'll just have to wait and see. Greg, Jennifer mentioned the, the taxation issues. I've I've heard that there are at least some instances of folks on reservation who are uh, contesting tax liability or perhaps asking for reimbursement uh, based on, you know, adjacent issues to McGirt. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you see that playing out? It's a big issue. Taxation in Indian country, taxation on reservations, uh, is a notoriously complicated area of the law. But one, you know, very general principle is that a tribal member who works and earns income on her own reservation, her own Indian country. So, for example, a Creek Nation citizen who lives and works on the Muscogee Creek Reservation here in Tulsa, for example, you know, a, a very general rule is that the state typically cannot tax the income of a person like that because the income is derived on a reservation, derived on Indian country. That principle had not been applied very widely in Oklahoma because it was thought for many years that we didn't have reservations. But now there's a big question, does that principle apply and how is it going to work here? And a lot of tribal members are taking that question up right now with the Oklahoma Tax Commission through various protests. And it is, it is a big, potentially costly question for the state of Oklahoma. I mean, the Oklahoma Tax Commission has estimated that sort of income tax issue could cost you know, many millions of dollars to the state. There are other questions coming up about taxation of various different entities that will have to be resolved um, with the state through these administrative processes or litigation. But in general, things like your average everyday property taxes for a non-tribal citizen, like that's not affected. So for the vast majority of people, you know, there's no taxation impact. And ultimately what the taxation, you know, effects of McGirt will be, that's still to shake out. I mean, it's not fully determined, but the way that general taxation principles work in Indian country suggests that big changes could be coming for Oklahoma. Well, speaking of changes, let's move to kind of the final phase of our discussion today, which is we've talked about the myriad of, of impacts from the McGirt decision. Surely that means that the future is going to be replete with potential other changes made. Um, Jennifer, you talked about potential congressional involvement. I would suppose there could potentially be other Supreme Court decisions on the horizon that might also impact. What are your thoughts about those twin pillars of change? congressional change or something from SCOTUS that might impact McGirt? Oh, absolutely. There's always an opportunity for those things to occur. As far as SCOTUS decisions, you know, the the decision in McGirt specifically addressed the Muscogee Creek Nation. Many other nations within Oklahoma and outside are starting to use the jurisprudence to advance, you know, their own arguments before different courts, including the Supreme Court, to try to defend their own treaty rights and their own reservation statuses. 
that includes different tribal nations within Oklahoma. And as those decisions rise up through, you know, the different courts and even make their way to the United States Supreme Court, we might have decisions from the Supreme Court that somehow discuss different aspects of the McGirt effects that were not discussed in McGirt itself. Uh, So, of course, any subsequent decisions might come back and inform our uh, understanding of what McGirt held or change it to some degree. However, the underlying jurisprudence that a reservation is not disestablished without express congressional statements uh, has been the law for many years. And that part of the McGirt decision will not change. It's just going to be whether there are decisions coming up from the different tribal nations in Oklahoma that kind of reinform or add to it. Sure. With, with McGirt being uh, you know a toddler in terms of its precedential value uh, nearing its one-year anniversary, you're right. There's going to be a lot of other cases that will help us better understand its impact. Greg, what about you know, monitoring other scenarios, you know, other than criminal law, where, you know, McGirt could be an impact on industries. Uh, I'm sure the practice group is watching that. What are your what are your thoughts about that? We certainly are watching that. And there have been a number of cases filed here in Oklahoma where McGirt has been raised in the oil and gas context, for example, who has the authority to regulate oil and gas on a reservation in Oklahoma. That question is is coming up in various ways and in various aspects. Certain mining regulations, the Department of Interior recently has declared that they will be taking over certain mining regulatory aspects from the state because the mining issues are occurring on reservations. And that's typically a federal regulatory presence. So there are there are all sorts of things, you know, that that we're keeping in mind. Taxation, like we've discussed. Um, any number of people are challenging taxation issues. And so that, you know, there will be decisions changing that area of law. So it is pretty wide, you know, the things that we're keeping an eye on and and attorneys all over the state of Oklahoma are, are keeping an eye on as well. This is coming up in a lot of places. Well, I'm glad that you guys are as well. And I guess in closing, just want to ask the two of you just briefly your thoughts on on how how do you think the McGirt should be used in case law or, or, or really just as a mechanism of reform? Jennifer, start with you. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, certainly I've already touched on this just a little bit, but McGirt is going to be one of those cases in this big body of law on treaty rights that we're going to see quoted for many years. And I think especially with uh, Secretary Halland now leading our Department of Interior, we're going to see perhaps a shift in the willingness of tribal nations to come and bring their cases to the Supreme Court because there was a time when, and there still is some hesitation about whether their cases are going to be heard by a voice that understands federal Indian law, a justice that will be welcome and and opening to their arguments. And it looks like the Supreme Court does have an advocate for Indian law to some degree in Justice Gorsuch. So that is all part of this um, consideration of how much a tribe will take their treaties to the Supreme Court and start to advance their rights or uphold some of these promises. I think we'll continue to see that in the coming years. And, and Greg, what about the, the reform piece of this? What impact do you see McGirt having in terms of legal reform or even just reform in terms of, you know, tribal administration? Right. And, and this is, uh, McGirt is a big opportunity for the five tribes to expand their footprint in not only the criminal justice system, but also 
you know, providing civil justice or, or other forms of government within their reservations. You know, the reaffirmation of their reservations is, uh, like Jennifer was saying, this is keeping a promise. And part of that transforms into new responsibility for the tribal governments to maintain prosecutorial presences, to maintain open court systems, uh, and to provide effective governance for their citizens and, and their reservation. And uh, the tribes are really rising to this challenge, in my opinion. You know, I'm, I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation, and I can say Cherokee Nation has already invested quite a bit of money in, in beefing up their criminal justice system and revamping their uh, code of laws uh, and investing in making sure that their court system is accessible and open and really doing the work with uh, local non-tribal governmental entities, cities and the counties and the municipalities um, and working with the state of Oklahoma to make sure that this jurisdictional shift is as smooth as possible and that it protects everyone, you know, native and non-native alike on the reservation. And the other four tribes are, are doing that work as well. So it's really a, a really a golden opportunity for the tribes to take stock of their systems and say, how can we serve our citizens? How can we serve our reservation? How can we serve our non-native partners? And how can we contribute to the growth of Oklahoma, you know, for all of its citizens. And I think the tribes are rising to that challenge. Well, well said by both of you. I, the takeaway for me today has been that McGirt has even more depth and history to it than I had realized, and its impact will live on for years and years. And anyone in the state of Oklahoma who does business here would do well to continue to monitor its impact. And I'm, I'm thankful for the, the work that you guys do within uh, your practice group to, to help our business community and our friends and clients and the five tribes to, uh, to address these situations. Now, we've covered a lot, and I know that our time together is is nearing its end, but I do want to take just a moment to play my favorite game in each of these podcasts, which is that little segment known as Get to Know Your Crow. I'm going to start with you, Greg, something that not many might know about you, but is a pretty interesting factoid, is that you were actually a contestant on the game show Jeopardy, I think back in 2013, and word is that you uh, you did pretty well. How, how did you turn out? Yeah, so I was a Jeopardy champion in 2013. Uh, I won one game. I won $26,000 which was a pretty, a pretty good chunk of change. And I was fresh out of college. This yeah. was it's a huge chunk of change when you're coming out of college. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was pretty great. Uh, the second game, unfortunately I did lose in final jeopardy on a spelling technicality. I, I spelled the nation of Kazakhstan wrong. Um, I spelled it with an I, you know, uh. and most of the other stands, the Pakistan, the Afghanistan, Turkmenistan, they all have eyes in the spelling, but uh, Kazakhstan, unfortunately, does not. And uh, so that that got my answer thrown out. Wow. Alex and his scoring crew tripped you up in the end. Well, it's still a tremendous outcome, a really interesting fact about you. And I'll, I'll turn next to, to Jennifer. Um, Jennifer, I know that you're a local arts enthusiast, but rather than just enjoy the arts and consume them, you actually play an active role. Um, tell the audience a little bit about your involvement in, in supporting the local arts. 
Yes, I am very excited that we have so many wonderful components to our arts community now. There's so many things moving into Oklahoma City, and I am particularly a fan of Oklahoma Shakespeare in the Park. So I am now president of their board, and we are actually progressing with our summer season after the pandemic uh, closure and reinvigorating uh, the arts here in Oklahoma City. So Paseo is going to have live Shakespeare coming at the end of this month. And I really enjoy being able to participate in that as one part of my way to give back to the community. So that is excellent. Just goes to show how well-rounded and interesting both of you are in addition to being source experts within this area. And I can't thank you enough for being uh, on the show today. Well, it was certainly a great pleasure to have Jennifer and Greg here with us on the show today. We're very grateful for the time and the insight that they have shared with us. Folks, before we close out, I want to ask you all to do us a favor. If you're enjoying Briefly Legal, and I know that you are, uh, would you give us a rating or a review on our podcast app of choice? We'd love your feedback and help as we continue to produce content that we think would be interesting and helpful to all of you. Also, if you have a show idea, please send us a note at legal at crowdunlevy.com. So that's a wrap for today. We thank you so much for spending a little bit of your day with us. This is your host, Adam Childers, and I hope that you will join us next time here on Briefly Legal.